All right, this is episode number 75 of the Bearded Marketers Podcast, the only internet marketing podcast that matters. I'm Rob. And I'm Corey. Of course, you can catch new episodes every Monday morning at thebeardedmarketers.com slash podcast on Stitcher Radio and on iTunes, where if you are listening right now, stop, I guess continue listening, but you can also rate us at the same time. Do it. Rate us, review us, share us with a friend. All of those things would help to get the show out to more people, which is the goal here, that right? And help us understand where we're at with the show. What do yeah. we maybe need to are, change Do we actually up? suck? Just let us know. <laughs> I mean, we'll, we'll try to change. Oh, yeah. But... Or maybe we'll just keep doing it the way it is. <laughs> it's been 75 episodes. <laughs> Nothing's changing at this point. <laughs> One of the staples of the show is we talk about what we're drinking, along with giving you the marketing nuggets from the week. Everything that we sifted through to bring you the real, real, what you need to pay attention to, we like to get a little bit of drink on. So, Rob, speaking of things changing, what's your drink this week? I'm not sure what this is. What is this in this? Buffalo. This is Buffalo Trace bourbon, some sort of Diet Coke drink, and lime juice. Okay. I'm not really sure if that's called anything. So not a Moscow Mule. No, not a Moscow Mule. So yeah, that, there is something different there. What Buffalo are you doing? Buffalo Trace, very tasty. Absolutely. I'm recommended. actually doing, and you made fun of me for this, I'm doing a Manhattan today. I'm trying to bring an air of sophistication. A Manhattan. Maybe that's... like a, a Mad Men feel to the show. Yeah, it's pretty fancy, <laughs> right? So kick us off. What are we going to be talking about this episode? Topic number one, some Instagram making it shoppable options that are available out there. The thing that a lot of people complained about, you know, Instagram, I can get a ton of followers, but what's it good for? Let's find out some ways we can get people to buy in from us. Number two, Twitter stats are now open to everyone. So what do we get from some of that? How useful is that? Number three, five email tactics to move away from. This is an article from Clixie. You'll run us down. Number four, video is awesome. You should be using it. I'm going to leave it at that. Of course, like you like to always say, we can't have an episode without Google Corner. We've got a few updates we will cover there. So let's just get right into it. Instagram, how do we make it shoppable? How do we capitalize on all of those? What are they called on Instagram? Followers? I guess you can call them followers, right? Sure. Creeps. All of the, all Creep the creeps, <laughs> creep modes that are following my Instagram account. How do I get the sweet, sweet money from them? Because mm-hmm. that's what it all comes down to. You know, a lot of the other social networks, Twitter is one that we can talk about a lot. We're going right. to talk about it in a minute here. It makes it easy to capitalize on that. You can run ads, call to actions in there, direct people off of Twitter and onto your buy pages. Pinterest has got some really awesome integrations where you can put pricing and buy links directly next have, like, to a things. Store within yeah, exactly. It's, it's really awesome. Facebook tried it, fell on their face, Yeah, still trying that train, still haven't had much success in it. So it just doesn't seem like it would fit with Facebook. Obviously it Farmville and polls. I don't really see myself. <laughs> shopping there. It perfectly fits with Pinterest though. I mean, that is yeah. just like the perfect social network. Also, to try I don't to know if things. you've noticed this when I was on Facebook before I left. Also awesome for multi-level marketing. That's, that's actually oh, yeah. when yeah. I found myself thinking, okay, I'm actually getting old. All my friends are starting to get into these multi-level marketing schemes. Like, all the all the juices and powders oh yeah. that they're selling. Everything's everything's about diet stuff oh yeah. now. Yeah. All right. So back to Instagram. How do we make this shoppable for all of us e-commerce marketers out there that are throwing up cool pictures of our products? How do we get some sweet, sweet money? So there's a company out there and you know, I don't like to pitch companies that haven't used this product on my own. But I thought it was a really cool integration and something that I had sort of thought of in my mind. You know, I'm not a huge Instagram user, but I felt like this was something that should happen. And now it has. So there's a company out there called Curalate who's created a product called like to buy So you can set up an account with them. And what it lets you do is add a little link into your Instagram profile that when users click on it, it looks like they're still in Instagram. It shows either 
products they've liked from your feeds or featured ones that you want to feature yourself. The layouts, again, with all the pictures look the same, but now you have embedded buy links. So when they click on those things, they can jump over to the product pages on your website where they can buy those products. This is, that is such a slick integration. Again, we'll, we'll tweet out things like we always do because I think what's key with this is how it looks and that it looks just like Instagram looks and works like you would sort of expect it to. So all of those guys out there who surf in Instagram and I see, oh, that's a cool watch. That's that's a cool shirt or whatever. I never know how to get it. How do you even search for that, right? You have right. to like steal the image and maybe do like a reverse Google image search so to try to find it. bringing the pinning aspect of yeah. Pinterest to Instagram, but with the intent of potentially purchasing that later on. What's interesting about the article, too, is they talk about that they've already demoed a similar product that they came out with, which they called FanReel. And it's a product that allowed brands to incorporate user-generated images into their website and product pages. And about 50 brands, including Urban Outfitters, Wetseal, launched this product and saw a rate at which traffic from Instagram turned into sales increased collectively about 26%. So what's neat about this company is they actually already have some experience in this space and they're bringing that to the table. So it might be an interesting foray into Instagram to see if companies can really take a hold of that. Now, one question I do have, because it wasn't really clear from the article, is how deep is this integration, particularly when it comes to applications. So if I'm on a mobile device and I'm using Instagram, does the same functionality work? And does it also seamlessly integrate within that Instagram app? Or is it going to transport me outside of the app into this new experience? Whereas on a desktop, it might be a little bit easier to have that seamless. What happens in like the mobile space? Or well, have they it, release that yet? As far as I'm aware, it's designed in the mobile space. Okay. So when you click on it, I think when you click on links inside Instagram, you stay inside Instagram. Right. It's, it's like, like a sort of framed in, in yeah. thing. So that's what gives it this feel of it's framed in and it, and it still looks like Instagram. Okay. Gotcha. So it's really slick. It looks like you're still inside Instagram and now you can actually click and buy things, which I think if you click at that point, it'll jump out. Right. Of Instagram itself, but it looks really slick. I think, again, I think that's a key part of it. That's mm-hmm. a good point. And that's why I'll definitely tweet out some pictures of it. Isn't going to apply to a lot of smaller guys out there, but I don't know, it's, maybe it depends on like yeah. how trendy your product is. I mean, we work with a couple of clients that are, I would say, smaller, but social channels for them yeah. provide like a huge traffic source. And I think it definitely is a, a place where maybe you can find better, even competition with some of the larger retailers out there because the social aspect sometimes can level that playing field a bit more Mm -hmm. than maybe PPC or going out and trying to acquire traffic other means. The only reason why I say that is because there's no pricing on this website. Uh, Uh, To get access, (laughs) you have to fill out this 20 field form. So I'm sure it's very pricey. But I think that, you know, this points in the right direction. Mm -hmm. I think maybe even at some point, I don't understand why Instagram would roll this out themselves. This is sort of like another company testing products and features for you, and then you do it yourself. In your face. Exactly. Well, maybe they'll acquire them. Who knows? Oh, yeah. It's the easy way to do it, right? Right. Take the Google model. All right. Moving on. Talk about Twitter for a little bit. That was enough on Instagram. Let's get the social network stuff out of the way at the beginning of the show. Like I said, this is something... I love Twitter. I love advertising on Twitter. It's so easy and slick. I don't think enough advertisers are doing it, especially not correctly, that is. So if you have products and you're semi-active on the Twitter social network, I think it's a perfect fit. Get out there, look at some of the uh, targeting options. They've got some pretty slick remarketing options now at this point too. 
So get those pixels on your website stat. You can also remarket to your email lists. Again, I know this is maybe sounding like a, a pitch again. This is pitch number two for the show <laughs> for Twitter advertising, but we really highly recommend it. Actually, in fact, go to thebeardedmarketers.com. I don't know what the URL is exactly off the top of my head, but there's a brands we trust link mm-hmm. and you can get a $50 credit for Twitter ads. If you, if you click on the it. Twitter one, yeah, we can get sign up and get a, a promo code, something we set up with Twitter because we like them so much. <laughs> anyway, Twitter stats. So for a long time, there wasn't much you could figure out about, okay, you know, I'm, I'm tweeting, but it feels like I'm in an echo chamber here. Right. A lot of people use Twitter in a way as like, I am just going to follow a bunch of people, try to get my follow-up numbers high, and then say things to nobody. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody's really listening to what I'm saying. So how do I try to find out how many people are maybe actually listening to what I'm saying? Because if we have links, we can track those and, and maybe know how many people are clicking on those. But how many people even just saw what I said right. or care? So now Twitter ads or Twitter ads for a while gave you some of those stats. But now if you aren't running Twitter ads, you can get all of those stats at analytics.twitter.com. If you have an account, it will show you all of these wonderful charts and graphs about things like how many impressions your specific tweets got. It'll show you some trends. It'll show you some averages on, you know, did people click on the expand to see more about your tweet type stuff? You know, because there's a lot of fancy cards on Twitter now. So it'll show you things like that. How many favorites, how many clicks on your profile? I mean, literally anything you can think of that someone can do on your Twitter profile or interact with anything you've done on Twitter, you can get stats on it now and try to figure out... What's like the best way to do things? Right, exactly. Optimize your strategies. Exactly. Does it make sense to have 20 hashtags in my tweet that I tweet out at 2 a.m.? No. (laughs) Hashtag, you know, long hair don't care or whatever, (laughs) you know, at 2 a.m. at the clubs. How many people paid attention to that? You can find all that stuff out and try to sort of back out what is working for you and your audience. So highly recommend it. You know, don't want to spend too much time on that, but definitely another shout out for... Uh, Twitter, if you're not using it, get on it and check out those analytics. One of the things that I wanted to cover, so we've gotten some good response. People have been loving some of the email chatter that we've been doing on the show. So wanted to keep that trend going. Came across an interesting article. It might be a little bit dated, I feel like, in some of their advice, but it's from Clixie. Really, the title of it was, which this actually did catch my eye, so good job on the headline, Optimization, Kill It With Fire, five best practices that need to go away. So just to clarify, this article is talking about best practices that I would say are staples for many people. But really, the market has moved beyond that. And there's some other considerations that you need to uh, potentially consider now. So number one, view on mobile device links. Just stop. Just stop right now. I mean, you should be optimizing your emails regardless of device at this point. And if you're crutching on that, I mean, number one, at the end of the day, that's just lazy. With device usage at this point, it needs to work cross-platform. So you really need to be removing that. And honestly, for even the campaigns back in the day where I felt like mobile and tablet wasn't as high of a usage as it is now, I always saw extremely low engagement on those links anyway. And I believe that a lot of people felt as if I put these links on there, people will use them. No, they won't. People are in a hurry oftentimes, especially on a mobile device or doing tasks pretty rapidly. And they're not going to take time to potentially click that link, be sent to a landing page. I mean, that's just not well thought out. So if you're using that, again, move away from that. It's just really antiquated. Well, I think the only people I think I hear advocating that still are the ones who are also advocating having 
having a separate mobile site, which, you know, to their defense, in some cases does sort of make sense. Sure. But because it can take a long time to overhaul an entire site and make it responsive and look well. But when you're talking about emails, come on, that's pretty straightforward. There's tons of stuff out there about how to do that. I mean, a couple hours of time, I mean, you don't send a new email completely differently every week. <laughs> you know, use a template, it's built, it's done, and now all your stuff is going to look good on mobile devices. It's wasted real estate at this point. And I think that you can better serve it with other things. And at the point we're at now with automation and personalization, you should be able to pick up what device usage patterns people have and send them an optimized layout anyway. So mm-hmm. won't belabor that one too long. Number two, I have kind of mixed feelings about this. I think the copy, obviously, it needs to go away. Forward to a friend. So it's just like an old antiquated design. People will forward things if they find it interesting. Anyways, you don't have to ask them. And I, it's actually almost rare that I run into this now. Obviously, we've moved more into the social realm. But I still think people will forward things if they need to. And again, when it comes to email, you're trying to juggle a lot of different tasks and dealing with really limited real estate oftentimes don't dedicate time space and attention away to these secondary things that really people will do inherently if they want to mm-hmm. um, but you are usually better served spending your time and attention to more meaningful aspects and i think a lot of people get greedy with email and they try to throw a ton of things at the wall hoping something sticks but the problem with email is again you're dealing with a lot of limited real estate and if there's too much going on people just move on they're kind of overloaded at choice because again we're condensed in size and ultimately everything suffers when you get greedy like that so Mm -hmm. keep your subject lines less than 40 characters again old antiquated thought process there i think with, again, device usage and different ways people are accessing emails, it's good to write front-heavy subject lines. But again, don't necessarily limit yourself to those 40 characters. There's a lot of different ways people can view emails. And longer headline you might find will not necessarily get less people reading on the devices that only have access to those 40 characters or less. But you're also going to gain more readership and open rates from those people that can actually take advantage of from those longer lines. Again, antiquated thoughts. We can move past beyond that. Now this one we can spend some time on. Some people might be getting their learn on with this one. One click unsubscribe. So a lot of people, there's this prevailing thought in our industry that a lot of people believe can spam. If you're not familiar, maybe you're outside the U.S. or you just don't know. There is this act that governs email communication and some other things online from the FTC. And as part of that act, there is some governance around how you need to provide unsubscribe options to email solicitation and communications online. Now, a lot of people have read this and interpreted that you need to have one-click unsubscribe, which means if I click that unsubscribe button, automatically I'm removed from the marketing list and I'm unsubscribed at that point. That's actually not the case, but I know that you have a lot of experience kind of in the email space, particularly around compliance. (laughs) So I wanted to see if you could provide some of your thoughts on optimizing that, your thoughts on that in general, and maybe something that people need to take away from and maybe learn to optimize their unsubscribe strategy. Number one, I'm not a spammer, although you made me seem like one just then. (laughs) No, I I just had a few opinions on it. One is I think, I don't know how many people are actually going to accidentally click on an unsubscribe link. Or, and the other example they give on here too is like, also there are bots and other systems that may sort of auto-follow links inside emails, which then may unsubscribe people. I don't know that I agree so much with that one either, although it may be a possibility. I think some of the platforms out there, like, for example, MailChimp, another friend of the show, 
who has a one-click unsubscribe. It's actually like a JavaScript base that fills it out for you and submits it for you. So a bot in that case wouldn't necessarily, you know, unsubscribe you. I'm a fan of the one-click unsubscribe. In my view, if someone's clicking that, they probably don't want to get my shit anymore anyway. Uh, making them go through one or two more steps just isn't going to make a huge difference. Uh, Maybe also, just infuriate <clears throat> them more. Yeah, exactly. And I think what pisses me off even more is that oftentimes when you don't use a one-click unsubscribe, these marketers I think they're so slick. Think they're so damn slick by the way that they word the questions. Mm-hmm. Am I getting off this list or am I getting on it? And I didn't realize I was on 10 lists. Which ones <laughs> right. do I have to get off? Or am I like actually signing up for other ones now? I have no idea what's going on. I hate the whole profile approach, edit your profile and oh, all this okay. sort of stuff. Yeah. Unsubscribe links should be that unsubscribe links and do what right. they say. You could send people to a page that says you've been unsubscribed and have a big undo button. You know, maybe they did make a mistake. Sure. I think you could you sort of fix that with that sort of solution. But that's how I stand on it. People click it. I don't want them on my list anymore anyway. Because well, I think that's part of the infancy of this industry and in that people still have not caught on to the fact that non-qualified lists can be a big risk for your business, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly when it comes around spam complaints and things of that nature or hard bounces as some of these platforms are starting to measure and report on like Google. So it behooves people. I know it's counter to what you would think that bigger email lists are better, but that's oftentimes not the case, especially now that companies like Google uh, and some of these providers are getting smarter about what they do. And to your point, Putting roadblocks in front of people can actually cost you in the long run. Yes, you might have recouped that person or frustrated them to the point where they say, you know what, I just can't deal with this right now. But potentially right then and there, they start marking your emails as spam or later on. And now you've cost yourself potentially even more and with your domain reputation and things like that. So you need to really think through your unsubscribe tactics very carefully because you might think you're slick, but actually you might be costing yourself in the long run. And, And I know that some of that information might be valuable, like understanding why people are unsubscribing or changing frequency. But to Rob's point, don't make that so difficult where you're pissing people off even more. If people don't want to be on your list, let them be off your list. The last one that we're going to cover is an old antiquated don't use CSS in your emails. Yes, it is true. Some of the oldies in the space like Outlook and things like Mm -hmm. that have some troubles with CSS, but now with most email platforms, you can get around that by sending alternative versions if we start seeing Outlook usage and things like that. But CSS can provide you a very nice experience when people are opening up emails, especially as we talked about, you know, in the beginning in this multi-device world, you know, CSS and some of the aspects of HTML emails can provide you a better designed email experience and can help you stand out. So even though it's been chanted for a while because of some of these legacy people such as Outlook, again, CSS is something that you should explore and execute well. There are a lot of people in the space like MailChimp, I know Campaign Monitor and some of the other ones have actual templates libraries that you can work off of. And these have been specifically optimized for cross-platform viewing. So there are some resources out there. Maybe we'll tweet out a link to some of the places where you can start exploring, you know, how do I make my emails not so ugly and take advantage of some of the more modern ways to look at email design. So, so those are some of the five old email staples that maybe you need to reassess within your own company. Potentially you're still using some of these and and think that they're gospel, but as the internet has moved forward, potentially you need to reevaluate some of these and see how your email list and recipients might react as you start moving away from these. That's going to be enough on email. Rob, why don't you tell us about 
why we always preach this, how awesome video is and why people should actually care about it. Obviously, video, like you just said, is something that we've been doing a lot here on The Bearded Marketers. We're going to be doing it a lot more in the future, so keep an eye out for some of those things. But at the same time, video is very new online, especially in terms of marketing. You know, obviously YouTube's not new, but Mm -hmm. in terms of using video professionally to pitch products or in terms of like content marketing, it's relatively new. Not a lot of companies are taking advantage of it yet, and there aren't a lot of benchmark guides out there. I mean, who's doing it? How much are they spending on it? Is it working for them? So I wanted to just briefly talk about a benchmark in video, you know, share some of the results that we've had here at the Bearded Market and with some of our other partners too. So anyway, so let's just get right into it. This is a benchmark that's looked at a bunch of B2B, B2C, and agency organizations involved in online marketing. I do want to say this up front. I mean, this is from Marketing Land. The study was conducted by a company called Vidyard, which is a video analytics platform. So obviously there's going to be a bit of a slant there, but I think they got this data from somewhere else. It's their analysis that may have a little bit of a slant to it. First question that I wanted to cover here is how is the ROI of video changing? I think that is one of those things that I think scares a lot of marketers away from trying to do video. They think, okay, number one, I don't even know how to do it. So I'm going to have to hire someone to do it or a firm to do it. I don't have the equipment to do it. Where am I going to do it? And who am I going to get to write scripts and who's going to be in it? And all of these questions. But I think a lot of that can be quelled. I mean, what we did here at the Beard of Marketers to get videos up and running is I think maybe we spent $500 between, I mean, and that was all the equipment right. we needed from lights studio. and, uh, you know, the camera and the backdrop and all of that stuff was $500. Now, the software is a separate thing. But to get up and running with that, video doesn't cost much and anymore. And you can do video yourself. Trust me. Get some makeup though. You know, you're going to have to <laughs> make sure you're important. on point. Um, be pasty pale on the yeah, videos. Exactly. So anyway, so this back to the question, how is the ROI of video changing? And nearly 50% say it's, it's moving better in the better direction. And I think that's just a point of, look, there's services out there like Wistia that are affordable to host your video, your videos on and have a lot of cool metrics. The cost of all this equipment is going down. It's becoming more popular. You can find people at reasonable rates to help you do it too. So I think that that's a great direction that video is going in. Going beyond that too, some of the issues that companies have with it, not only the ROI, but understanding the cost getting involved with it, not just from the equipment like we talked about, but what's going to be the exuded quality of our videos? How much time is it going to take to get these things to market? I mean, I could easily churn out a blog post pretty quickly, but I think the prevailing thought is video just takes a ton of time and it might not look good. Whereas we have a little bit more creative control over things like blog pieces or our website, things like that. Video feels like more wild, wild west Mm -hmm. and more of an unknown, which pointing back to Wisty, they have a great learning series on how you tackle some of those issues and how do you produce videos on a short budget, but also do it efficiently and how to churn out videos in a more quicker manner than you probably thought possible. So I think if more companies explored this space, they might be getting into it because some of those unknowns can be solved for. But I think that that's really what causes some hesitancy. Also say, I think the prevailing thought for a long time was, well, we're seeing a lot of mobile and tablet usage and we don't necessarily have fast mobile networks or how, do, how are those devices going to interact with video you know, but as the market and the internet has progressed, that integration has gotten much more smooth. You know, Flash was like a big deal and a hurdle back in the day because that's what all the video players were built on. We've moved past that. There's a lot of good HTML5 options out there. So all of the stumbling blocks or, or hurdles that cause people some pause on video are being whittled away and very quickly in the space. So 
you need to kind of reevaluate. If you find yourself making those excuses, not really valid anymore, or there might be some more solutions out there than you thought possible to get around some of them. Those are all great points. So along that vein, like here's where people are standing in terms of how many videos the typical company is producing annually. And then I'll talk a little bit about where people are sort of seeing videos going. So here's where people stand right now. 32%, this is the largest percentage of people were producing 11 to 50 videos per year. It's a decent chunk of videos. When you really think about it, 17% were producing 50 or more. That's a lot of videos. Videos take a lot of time and effort, depending on exactly what you're trying to churn out. Mm -hmm. But nearly 50% were making 10 or fewer. So yeah, we just churned out a few. I guess the Bearded Marketers falls into that category right there. I also wanted to talk a little bit about what people are measuring with online videos, because this feels like the way online analytics used to be, Mm -hmm. and that, okay... I knew how many uniques my... Well, actually, I didn't even know that. I knew how many page views my website got. I know how sure. many hits, right? Remember back in the day, oh, yeah. I, I had hits. Mm-hmm. I knew how many hits I got, and that's about it. I actually um, put it on my site. I had a site yeah, hit counter. Yeah, hit counter. <laughs> video is kind of similar to the way that that used to be. So right now, 14% of companies doing video are not measuring anything on their videos. So they're doing them, churning them out, and we ain't measuring anything, right? So we may have page analytics on those pages where the videos are, Mm -hmm. but we don't actually have any information on the videos themselves. How many people are playing them? How, you know, anything about that stuff. I like these people. They're mavericks. Just let's Uh, put it up. Roll. We'll do it live. (laughs) So 48% are measuring very basic things. And this is where, you know, kind of like the hits thing is similar. Mm -hmm. So we, we know how many people viewed the videos and we know maybe how many people were sharing videos. So those are the basics. So that's a huge portion of people who don't really know much about what's going on with their videos. 24% are measuring some more inner immediate things like what's the average view length, more in-depth stuff like that. But 14% are going all out. Something like a Wistia platform would give you another shout out to Wistia, friends of the show, <laughs> and really paying attention to things like viewer drop-off rates, which I think is so key with videos. If someone's watching my video, I want to see a heat map of when does everyone stop watching the video or where are some of those fall-off points. So in future videos that I'm making, I know that, okay, whatever I started talking about around three minute mark where everybody stopped listening, mm-hmm. uh, I need to not do that. Or maybe I find that's out just, that... That's just the time that the, we need to work with. Right. Then. The three minute mark is good for our audience. And mm-hmm. so we need to work within that. So video is such an awesome thing because you can learn very easily things like that. You can't figure that out with a blog post, right? right. I don't know where people necessarily stop reading, but I can with a video. And that gives you such great insight into exactly how people are consuming your stuff. Well, and also tying in that, you know, Wisty has great integrations. I think some of the other platforms do as well, but integrations into your analytics platform. So not only do we get information on these videos specifically, what are people doing on them, but how does that impact my overall macro conversions of the site? Do we find that adding video to our product pages or our lead gen pages actually result in higher conversions? Maybe even if people don't watch them at all, maybe actually having just the video on there is a mark of quality and something that people start trusting more about my product. So you can answer all of these sorts of questions when you tie it in and not looking at just how do I optimize my video strategy, but how does it tie into the overall strategy of my website and ultimately getting the goals done that I need to to make more monies? All right. And this is the last thing I'm going to cover. And then we're going to jump straight in to the Google corner. Finally, 63% of those polled see video as being far more important in the near future for their marketing efforts and campaigns and keeping up with what everybody else is doing in the industry is about to take off. Get on that train, you know? (laughs) Get another base level. All right, so tell me about Google. What's going on? Okay, we'll keep this short, but what is going on in Mountain View this week? I would say three things worth noting. First of all, if you are in the online 
e-commerce space with a storefront, pay attention. Oh, pay attention. Because Google has released and they're beta testing the ability to do product listing ads, but also tying that into in-store stock. So what Google is actually currently testing right now is say I'm driving along and I stop and get me a nice tasty burger. And while I'm out and about eating my tasty burger, I'm searching for new headphones. And I search Google for that. And there's some product listing ads that come back of headphones that are available. If I'm a retailer that actually has those things in stock, it will actually tie that into geolocation and market to that person that not only here is a product that you might be looking for, but we have it in stock ready available. I think this is extremely key because it gets at the heart at some of the concerns retailers have is showrooming and how do I parlay my online strategies with my retail box? How do those things interact? Mm -hmm. And what is the ultimate future of my retail space and how does that work together? And I think this is kind of an interesting integration between the two and it'll be very fascinating on how these two play out with one another, but also from a measurement standpoint. So yes, I am doing all these marketing things, but how do I bring all that information together that this person that I exposed to a PLA ad also then came in and converted on my retail site. I think that's going to be really the job for, as we've been talking about, getting that big data, tying all those things together, and it'll present an interesting challenge to marketers, but I think it's a great opportunity for retailers out there that might uh, help pull people into their stores, which hopefully headphones isn't the only thing that they buy as well. So yeah. very interesting development, and we're going to tweet out a link for you to check out. Next, and I'm not going to actually talk about this at all. This is going to be a homework assignment. <laughs> we've, we've discussed this on the show many times that Google authorship is going away in the search engine results pages. What I wanted to talk about here is Google actually released their own paper about it because it was a, an actually a long-term experiment for them. And there's a link to the article that we're going to tweet out. It's worth a read talking about their thoughts, what happened with it, what they expected and what really didn't materialize for them or some of the unexpected things that came about. It's actually very interesting to take their thoughts on it and why they made the decisions to not move forward with it. But definitely worth a read. So check out our Twitter. Keep an eye out for a link coming out soon. Last thing I'm going to talk about, and I'm going to dub this Search Inception. So they are rolling out this feature. I think that it's in beta as well, of course. Within the search engine results pages, if you are one of the top results for a given keyword query, along with some of the site links that will appear with your site. So maybe, so if you're not familiar with site links, let's say I do a search for Home Depot. What might be pulled back in the search engine results pages is not just a link for Home Depot, but there might be five or six links below that Home Depot listing that might be different categories yeah, or different departments categories, they have whatever or store be. locator or sure. whatever. Yeah. So what Google is actually rolling out along with those is there will be an actual search box below that, which will allow you to search homedepot.com directly. And it will then take you to a results page and hopefully get you to those products or page content that you're looking for even faster. So yeah. really Google's trying to go down the path of how do we get to people to more relevant pages quicker? So it might be worth checking out if you probably have decent amount of traffic, you might can get into the beta or you might've already been approached. Again, we'll tweet out a link, very fascinating feature and we'll have to see how adoption rates go, but I can see it being fairly useful as long as it works pretty well. So that's gonna do it for us this week. Thank you so much for your time. That was an amazing episode. Episode 75, I mean, we are three-fourths of the way to 100. Come on now. It's crazy when we think about no, how long we've been doing this. I don't, don't want to think about it. It's too long. <laughs> but if you enjoyed yourself, a couple things. One, we'd love for you to share with a friend, a colleague, as Rob would say, perhaps 
a lover. Also, if you found this episode worth your time, please leave us a rating on whatever channel you found us on. If you'd like to ask us something, maybe you're struggling with something and you don't really know what to do, maybe the boss is yelling at you, or you listen to everybody and go, those beard guys are kind of smart, but they didn't think about this. Tell us. You can drop us a line at thebeardmarkers.com slash contact, or you can give us a call 904-270-9603. Rob waits by the phone day and night. You can also text us if you're socially adverse and don't want to talk to anybody, but we'd love to hear feedback from you if you have an idea for the show or you're struggling with something. Thanks again so much for being here, and we'll see you next week. Gia. Gia.